Well, we are in the book of Joel again this morning. Uh, I think this is the sixth message, and I think the last message from this little book. Uh, three chapters, but packed with uh, glorious truth. And uh, I've tried to bring out that our purpose was not just to try to get an understanding of the book, but also to get a little better understanding of how to interpret prophetic scriptures in general. So this is uh, what we've done. We've kind of interspersed some principles of interpretation throughout uh, these messages. Um, Let me just give a brief outline of the book here uh, so we kind of know where we are. We've seen that Joel's word from God... uh, he was a spokesman for God. I mean, this is how he puts it right at the beginning, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. So he's giving us God's words, things that God had shown him. And they concerned things near to him, right there in the situation that he was in, his present, present circumstances, which had to do with an actual plague of locusts and a drought that... Uh, the land was experiencing. That's chapter 1. He gives his prophecy in light of that terrible destruction that had come upon the land because of the locust. And then he goes on to speak of a more serious, imminent threat to the people, a greater judgment from God, which was a coming army. And to tell of that, he, he described it using this plague of locusts as an illustration of how devastating this coming judgment would be. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In light of this present crisis then and the impending greater judgment that was coming upon them, he calls the people to repentance. He calls them to cry out to God for mercy and deliverance. That's chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And then, finally, in chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the book, he speaks of things far beyond his own day. See, he was dealing with things near at hand, things coming soon, and then things far beyond his own day, sometimes far beyond, when God would deliver his repentant people, pour out his spirit on all mankind, judge the nations, and bring full and final salvation. So that's kind of an outline of the book. Basically, if you would just want to divide it into two parts, you have destruction because of sin, that's up until chapter 2, verse 18, and then the rest of the book is restoration because of God's grace on his repentant people. So destruction and restoration, dividing it just into two parts to make it as simple as possible. Much of what Joel wrote in this book is highly metaphorical and it is also rooted in historical and cultural situations situations and settings that's, that are much different than our own. Consequently, there have been a number of different interpretations of this book. When you have metaphorical language and historical settings that are a lot different than ours, uh, It takes some extra work. We've talked about that. So the fact that there's been a number of different interpretations was one of the reasons that I felt like it was important to just, as we look through the book, to 
give some principles of interpretation uh, to keep in mind as we look at the Old Testament, especially Old Testament prophecies. So I thought I would just, to get your minds working this morning, everybody's awake, okay, can you tell me a few, one or two of these principles of interpretation that we've looked at? All right, the scriptures point to Christ. What was someone over here? I said Christ is the key. Christ is the key. I think we got number one. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good because that's the most important. And we, we drew something from that. If Christ is the key, what does that mean of, in terms of how we should read the Old Testament? Look at how the New Testament Exactly. Look at how the New Testament, look at what Christ said in the New Testament and how his apostles, the ones who wrote the New Testament, interpret the Old Testament, use the new, new to interpret the old. So those are a couple of very important ones. Um, well, I'll ask you any, another one. I'll give you one more try. Read poetry different. All right. There's different types of literature. Uh, God's word is literature. So we need to recognize that. And different types of literature are read in different ways. Um, some parts of scripture are straightforward narratives. Others are highly poetic. Some parts are doctrinal presentations. Others are apocalyptic revelation using much imagery and symbolism. So you read those type of things differently. Well, that's good. I, that's encouraging. Well, I'll go on and add a few more. Uh, we've looked at these also. It's important to keep in mind the direction of Revelation. God's word is always away from the shadows towards substance, away from outward forms and symbols toward more inward reality, away from the partial toward the more complete knowledge of God. It's a, it's a progressive revelation in God's word from the partial to the more full. Uh, we just, I think this would fit into the first one too. If, if a teaching tends to get our eyes off of Christ, making something central besides him, especially some external type things, beware, that's, there's something amiss here. We noted that Joel in particular is highly poetic. Um, most of the book is poetry. Just a little short section is prose. My wife told me, you need to define those things. People don't know. Or she didn't say the people. She said maybe the son, yet some of the young people don't know the difference between prose and poetry. Well, the way I put it is everything that's not poetry is prose. <laughs> So that ought to help you a lot. <laughs> well, when we're dealing with Joel, we're dealing with uh, a book that's highly poetic and contains end-time apocalyptic language and literature. And in that type of uh, literature, 
that type of writing, you have a lot of stereotyped imagery used to emphasize uh, the reality of judgment without necessarily saying that all that symbolic language is, is going to be fulfilled in literal detail. Those things are given to teach us the, the importance of what's going to happen, but not always the details of what's going to happen. The overarching desire of the prophets in using these powerful images and metaphors of judgment was that people would see the seriousness of their sin in order to bring them to repentance, not to give some detailed information about future cataclysmic events. For instance, in order to emphasize the danger and severity of God's judgment, the prophets would often use end-time cosmic judgment language to describe specific judgments throughout history. In other words, they're using language that applies to the end time, but they apply them uh, even in, in near events that were going to take place, things uh, closer to uh, the prophet's time. So it's important to remember that often final consummation language, like the sun and moon growing dark and the clouds and blood and fire and columns of smoke and that type of thing, um, is used to characterize near future judgments, not always end time judgments. Just because you see that type of imagery doesn't mean he's talking about the end times. We saw this in how this idea of the day of the Lord is used in Joel. Uh, when we talk about the day of the Lord, it's God's special interventions into human history for judgment and salvation, destruction of the wicked, deliverance of the righteous. But sometimes this end time language, this especially speaking of the day of the Lord, is used for judgment that was imminent, coming soon. Sometimes it was for judgment in the further future, and then sometimes it was for final judgment. So it's important to keep that in mind, too. You could maybe talking about something near, something further on, and something in the end times and in the language, or even speaking like uh, concerning the day of the Lord, can all be used for that, those different type of uh, timing and events. There's a sense in which all judgment in time, all judgments in time, are images or types or precursors of the cataclysmic final judgment for eternity. I actually think that this is what the Lord was doing, uh, at least partly, when uh, he responded to those reports and people came and told him about uh, the fact that Pilate had killed some people and mingle, mingled their blood with the sacrifices. Remember that account? Well, Jesus said it was not because they were worse sinners than any other, but rather it was a reminder to those living that judgment will come on, on them also. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There will be judgment for everyone. The fact that there is sometimes a near fulfillment, possible number of future partial fulfillments, and then a final full-time, full uh, end-time fulfillment in prophetic writings, often using similar language, 
can make prophecies a bit difficult to interpret. Uh, the fact is that in some cases, these various fulfillments may not have been distinguished even in the prophet's own mind. He may have seen them quite close together when in fact they're thousands of years apart. And we, we talked about that a little bit, about what uh, is sometimes called prophetic perspective, where the prophet himself may have viewed things that were separated by hundreds or thousands of years uh, as happening close together. We gave the example of approaching a mountain range that's far away from a distance. It looks like all the mountain peaks are close together uh, beside one another, when in fact these peaks are very far apart, uh, some many miles in back of others. Uh, so similarly, one prophecy might contain details of events spanning many different periods of time, but present it all together. So those are some of the things that we've looked at in terms of just in, uh, understanding how to uh, read prophecy, prophetic books. And one last thing I would mention just is that uh, in order not to get lost in the deta details, uh, it's always good to keep the big picture in view. Remember what the, Bi the Bible teaches in the, in the big uh, frame of reference when you go to try to understand the details of a prophecy like Joel. What was God's overall plan and purpose of creation? And in a nutshell, it was to bring glory to his name through a love relationship with his image bearers, that is, humanity. Sin ruined that. Christ restores that. Adam's sin did not surprise God. He always had a plan for a second Adam, a last Adam, to redeem humanity and restore his ravaged creation. So the big picture is centered on God summing up all things in Christ in a way that would produce eternal fellowship and harmony between God and his redeemed creation. In the beginning of the Bible, here's just kind of a way of thinking about this. In the beginning of the Bible, we see God dwelling with the people he has made, the people he has made in his image. At the end of the Bible, we see God dwelling with the people he has remade in the image of his son. So Genesis 1, Revelation 21. Most of the Bible in between there is about God cleaning up the mess that sin made. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This reconciling is done by the Trinity in unity. The Father planned redemption, the Son accomplished redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption. So that's the big picture. As we examine the history of Israel, we see numerous partial fulfillments of the prophecies and promises concerning the destruction and resurrection of the uh, and restoration of the Jewish nation, the land, and the old covenant system of temple worship and sacrifice. Now, this is something that we spoke of, but I didn't give you any specifics because many of the things in Joel had a partial fulfillment in the near future. Uh, let me just give a couple examples here of this uh, destruction because of sin, 
when the people of God, the Jewish people sinned, God brought devastation, there was repentance, they were restored. Well, if, for instance, for Joel, uh, if the date of the book of Joel is the 6th century B.C. Uh, or earlier, then the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian captivity 70 years later would be a partial fulfillment of this promise of destruction and restoration. You see this right there, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 18, this turning point in, in the book. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. So he's saying there's going to be restoration. If the, the first part of the book tells about their sin and, and the devastation because of the locusts and the possible uh, army coming upon them and bringing even worse devastation, but then there's this promise of restoration. Well, that could fit well with the, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. The temple was torn down. The people were taken uh, away in captivity, and then they returned 70 years later. It would be a partial fulfillment of of that uh, what's presented there in Joel. Similar examples could be cited concerning the nations and the events mentioned in the prose section of chapter 3. If you turn to chapter 3, this verses 4 through 8, that's the section of Joel. You see it's not indented like the rest. That, that's because it's in prose, not poetry. And uh, there's a lot of specific uh, places and uh, uh, kingdoms mentioned here as, as far as God bringing uh, retribution on the enemies of, of, of uh, the Jewish people. And if you read uh, historical accounts of the history of the Jewish nation, you find out that many of these things had partial fulfillments. For instance, the city of Sidon was captured and sold into slavery by, uh, and, uh, well, I got it written down here, Antiochus III in 345 B.C. Later on, the city of Tyre was captured and sold into slavery by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. So what, what's happening there is they were reaping what they sowed by previously selling the Jewish people into slavery. So that's just two, two of the account there. Uh, all I'm doing is trying to bring out that there were partial fulfillments as you read through history you find out that many of the things that Joel's talking about here did have a partial fulfillment near to the to uh, the uh, time of Joel or a little bit further in the future. Many partial fulfillments. But there are also things in Joel which speak of a restoration to God's people in which there, they don't fit those partial fulfillments. Even as we read through chapter 2, um, verse, well, verse 19 of chapter 2. I didn't read the last part of that verse. It says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. So that doesn't seem to fit because they were a number of times 
taken over even after the Babylonian captivity. And you see, he says it again in 26c, uh, last part of 26, and my people will never be put to shame. Again, that doesn't fit. And then you see 27 where he, say, he says it again uh, at the end of that verse. And my people will never be put to shame. So the partial fulfillments didn't, don't fit that uh, part, of the, uh, part of the prophecy. Um, as we looked at it in the past messages, a much fuller fulfillment was brought about with the coming of Christ coming of Christ, the inauguration of the New Covenant Church, and the outpouring of the Spirit. We know that Joel has to do with that because uh, we have these verses in 28 through 32 which uh, are quoted on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And even beyond that fulfillment, that fuller fulfillment, we have a final full fulfillment which will take place at the time of the second coming of Christ. So there was a, a much more fuller fulfillment of, of what's in Joel at the time of Christ's first coming, but the final full fulfillment of what's in, in this book is at the, the second coming of Christ when we have final judgment, the last judgment, and God bringing in a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We spent a little time just emphasizing the fact that the holy land and the holy city and the holy temple were merely temporary types and shadows to lead to the reality that's found in Christ. And because of that, it's wrong for us who live in these new covenant times to go back to the shadows, the old covenant shadows, since the light of Christ has now come. Actually, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So, well, that kind of brings us to where we were uh, last time. I want to have Jim come up and read to us. We'll go back just a little bit of what we covered last week and start with verse 12 of chapter 3, verse 12 of chapter 3, and read to the end of the book. So, Jim, if you would come. Joel chapter 3, verse 12. Let the nations be aroused, come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, 
dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Thank you, Jim. Well, we said that when we're in chapter 3, we're obviously in a context which... Uh, is related to this outpouring of the Spirit, which is what was in the end of chapter 2 here. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So we're looking past the time of Pentecost. We're looking at something way past Joel's time uh, as we're what we're into here in this section. With the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the gospel began to go out to the whole world. And really from God's standpoint, the next great thing on his calendar is the coming of the final great day of the Lord. There's been a number of days of the Lord throughout history, but when we talk about, and the New Testament uses this phrase, the the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about the second coming, we're talking about the bringing in of the full judgment, uh, full and final judgment and full and final salvation as we're reading through this section. Now, it is true that there's a sense in which God's judgment upon the nations has taken place repeatedly in history. Tyre and Sidon, mentioned those a second ago, Sodom, Gomorrah, Assyria, Nineveh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and even Jerusalem itself have all been judged because of their rejection of God and his people. That's what Jesus, when I put Jerusalem in there, that's what happened in 70 AD. God was bringing judgment because they, the nation had turned from God and rejected God's people. But there will yet be an ultimate judgment of God that will fall upon all unrepentant humanity. And it's going to be because of their injustices, their rebellion against God, and in particular, how they have treated the people of God. This is, this is something that comes out clearly in this section. Uh, Joel presents this in this, well, we didn't read this part, we did last week. Uh, first part of chapter 3, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. 
and they divided up the land, and they have cast lots for my people, and traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Uh, so he's saying there's judgment coming for, because of the way the world has treated the people of God. You see it again at the end, the one that Jim did read, chapter 19, I mean uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will be a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. Now if we just had, if we just had the book of Joel... We might conclude that this only involved the way the nations treated ethnic Israel. But because we have the New Testament, which is how we interpret the Old Testament, we look at how the New Testament does it, we know that this judgment of the nations includes how they treated all the people, all the true people of God, both Jew and Gentile. The people of the new covenant or what we said was spiritual Israel. Basically, you can say this judgment involves how the world has treated God's true spiritual people, spiritual Israel. Abraham's true seed is Christ and those who are in Christ by faith. For instance, in, the, uh, in uh, Thessalonians, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, this is what he says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So he's speaking to the church, New Covenant Church here, and he says it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, who have persecuted the church, and give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. See, we're talking about the second coming here will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution for those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So what, what's, what was their sin? Well, they didn't know God. They didn't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And then they, they afflicted God's people. And God's going to they'll be accountable for that. You see Jesus teaching this same thing in Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46. The nations will be gathered, we're told in that account, the nations will be gathered before Christ on Judgment Day, and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. On what basis? On the basis of how they treated his people. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the, one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do it to me. How they treated God's people. And it's no small thing. Jesus says in that context, those who did not do it to the least of God's people, he says to them, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels have constantly gone after the people of God. So the people that those who have persecuted God's people are going to be put in the same place where the devil and the angels are, demons. Well, we talked about this Valley of Jehoshaphat last time. The the name means Jehovah Judge. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah Judges. It's a Valley of Judgment. It's a place where God brings 
the world to judgment. But the book of Joel doesn't end with that. It ends with God being a refuge for his people in that great day of wrath and righteous judgment. God will be a refuge to his people. It ends with the plan of God being completed. God in perfect fellowship and harmony with his image bearers, dwelling with them forever. So let's just read how the book ends. Even though Jim just read it, it's such a good section. Thinking in terms of the end time uh, and God's people being brought to himself, the total restoration. The Lord roars from Zion, verse 16, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. Everything's going to shake someday, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. And a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day. What day is he talking about? This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord. In that day, that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with, with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for I, the Lord, dwell in Zion." So again, we're talking about spiritual Israel here. We're talking about the true seed of Abraham, individuals from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God himself is their refuge and stronghold, not some earthly fortress in Jerusalem. The Zion spoken of here in which God dwells, verse 17, uh, represents that kingdom which cannot be shaken. It's, it's firm on the mountain of God, God's holy mountain. Uh, it will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. The Zion that every person that's in Christ comes to. And we're told that in Hebrews 12, 22. And the Jerusalem spoken of here, this one that's holy, you see it in verse 17, uh, so Jerusalem will be holy. This, that's not the Jerusalem of this present age. This is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, which is the bride of Christ, the glorified church, having the glory of God upon it. It's this Jerusalem here, this is the city that Abraham was looking for, one that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Every person in that city is holy, totally, completely holy, by virtue of the fact that they've had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. 
We're told here that no stranger will pass through it. You see that in verse 17, the end of the verse. This means much more than that we'll never again be an invading military army. It means no one in this city, this land, this kingdom, will have the least opposition towards God's people. There will be no more resistance to God's word or his ways. All such opposition has already been dealt with at the valley of Jehoshaphat on that great day of the Lord in the valley of decision when Christ sits as judge and pronounces his decision concerning everyone who lives in opposition to him and his people. But the day of the Lord is, as we said, not only about judgment, it's also about blessing. Um, Again, that's what we're talking about when he says here in verse 18, and it came about in that day. In that day there will be universal peace and security and abundance and tranquility for God's people. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah will flow with water. Uh, these are descriptive ways, you see, of, tri- of, of God telling us just the peace, prosperity, and beauty and wonder of what he has in store for us using these, these symbolic pictures. Uh, even creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, the land, the beasts, the trees, which have suffered because of sin, human sin, will be renewed. I just want to follow that thought through the book here a little bit of Joel. If you could turn back to chapter 1, verse 18. Here's something that resulted from the, the sin of the people. It says, How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So he's talking about the suffering of of creation here because of uh, human sin, because of uh, God bringing judgment upon these uh, disobedient people. And then you, if you turn to, uh, well, you see it again in verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for thee, for the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 21, shows something of the restoration, Uh, 21. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So, a restoration of creation coming about because of God's grace and goodness through Christ. Um, We're told here in chapter 3 that a spring will go out from the house of the Lord watering even the distant places. Um, Chapter 3, verse 18, it says, A spring will go out from the house of the Lord and to water the valley of Shittim. Now this valley of Shittim is interesting. It was an arid area uh, beyond the Jordan, across from what was Jericho. So this is not close to Jerusalem. This spring goes out and, and, and waters this desert area, this dry area far away. 
And uh, I think this is a symbolic way of saying God will have living water for everyone and everything everywhere in the land. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The scorched land will become a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. That's in Isaiah. And we're told in Ezekiel 47 that everything will live where this river runs. Where, Where this river goes, everything lives. This spring that's coming forth from the house of the Lord. And then we're told in the book of Revelation, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The same thing Joel's talking about here, this spring going forth from the house of the Lord. Uh, So he says that uh, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, again, symbolic way of saying the wonder and joy of being in God's presence, uh, his life-giving river flooding the land. Another way of saying this is just what Joel said earlier. God will abundantly make up for the years that the locusts have eaten. But the big thing, the best thing of all that's brought out in this section is just that God will dwell with his people forever. That's, that's, the, that's the end game. That's, God starts out dwelling with his people in Genesis 1. Sin, sin ruins that. Christ comes to restore that. And this is what we see then in Joel and in the course in the end in the book of Revelation. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So, best of all, most of all, dwelling with God. Um, Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The opposite, of course, is true. He brings this out even in the midst of this description of uh, what will be the portion for God's people. The opposite is true of the enemies of God's people. He brings it up there in verse 19. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will be, be a desolate wilderness. That's just, those are two traditional enemies. It's, I think it's a, another symbolic way of saying God's enemies are going to be put down. So what you have here in the last part of the book of Joel, we have presented for us a symbolic, in symbolic imagery the truth concerning the fate of every man, woman that has ever lived on this planet. We have words of eternal significance for everyone, everywhere, for as long as this world will last, because it's talking about 
eternity, you see. He's talking about what will be our destiny. Words for us here today. Words of joy or judgment depending upon our relationship with God. So, um, I hope as you read through these uh, amazing words that that uh, will keep the big picture in view, the reality of what God has planned, because this is what I believe this is talking about. Um, it's an amazing little book related to the government of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God.